How could you keep your faith and sanity if you were locked up for years in a Turkish prison surrounded by anti-Christian Muslims and abandoned by everyone, even God? Could your faith sustain you during persecution and suffering for being a follower of Jesus Christ in a Turkish prison? This is Bob Boyd. And Jerry Boyd. This is Issues in Education. After 23 years of pastoring in Turkey, Andrew Brunson was imprisoned in a filth cell filled with flies, freezing in winter, sweltering in summer, surrounded by Muslims, and maybe some were ISIS terrorists. Even worse, Andrew Brunson felt a dark spiritual force without feeling the presence of God. Andrew Brunson, author of God's Hostage, the true story of persecution, imprisonment, and perseverance. Here is Andrew Brunson telling his story to students at Wheaton College in chapel service where some Some of the students might want to become missionaries. God was silent, and he remained silent. And I cried out in anguish, but it was like talking to a wall, just silence. And I felt completely abandoned. God describes himself as a father, and I'm his son. So what kind of a father, if his son is crying out for him, remains silent? Now when I'm in the valley of death, in my desperation, in the darkest time of my life, and I'm suffering, let me remind you, God, I'm suffering because of Jesus. Where are you now? And I was not prepared for what I faced. I thought I was relatively tough. I'd been 23 years in Turkey. If you want to be popular, you don't want to become a church planter in a Muslim country. If you want to be popular. I was shot at once. Turkish government tore down our house. Noreen and I spent time near a war zone. So I thought, you know, I've endured for 23 years. I'm pretty strong. But prison was beyond my strength. I was thoroughly broken. The prison biographies I had read did not prepare me for the struggle I faced in prison. And I expected, yes, it may be difficult, it's going to be hard, but I'm going to be filled with joy. Like Paul and Silas, you know, they're, they're in prison and, and yet they're singing. And then I thought, wait, they only spent a day in prison. <laughs> I knew it would be hard, but I expected that I'd have some, some sense of real strength in me. I've read of prisoners who've had encounters with Jesus, who encounter angels show up, they have visions, they hear the audible voice of God, some of them. I didn't. Many people have had a similar experience to mine. They occasionally have a bit of light, but it's rare. And most of the time they experience the silence of God and have a sense of abandonment. God tests his sons and daughters. He tests us. Think of the people you most admire in the Bible. Abraham, Moses, I really admire Moses, David, Joseph. And now think what they went through. These are God's friends. And look how he treated them. (laughs) Almost all of God's friends have a time of testing when answers were delayed, or they felt abandoned, or they experienced God's silence. And when God took them into that testing, he knew they would be stretched. He knew it would be hard for them. He knew it would be painful. And he took them into it anyway. And they made it through. They were faithful. And they emerged from the testing as proven and as friends of God. There are many who go into the valley of testing, and some do not make it out. Some do not survive. It's not automatic. And I've seen many believers who are knocked out of their friendship with God. And they may end up in heaven, but they miss out on the victories that God intended to win through them. There's an intimacy, there's a depth of friendship that only comes with testing. Untested love, untested loyalty is unproven. It may be real, but it's not proven. 
Think of soldiers. They train for battle. But until they've been in battle, there's something that's missing. After 18 months in prison, the Turkish government finally decided to put me on trial. And on my trial day, I was exhausted. I hadn't slept for two days. I hadn't eaten. Started to take anti-anxiety meds. And I stood alone, tired. I hadn't eaten. I was weak. And I stood alone in court for a 13-hour session. I was falsely accused of terror crimes and spying. I knew this was a completely political case. I knew that the judges did not care about truth at all. And they were asking for 35 years. And I was told that I'd be kept in solitary confinement and this traumatic prison for the duration of the trial. And that trial I knew could go on for two or three years. So I was devastated physically and emotionally. I was broken. And I lay there alone in my solitary cell. I had great fear. I had terrible grief. I was weeping. Where are you, God? Why have you permitted them to return me to this awful place? How many times will you let me be crushed? Grieving, weeping. And I was surprised by what I heard coming out of my mouth. Saying, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Yes, I do love you. Even if you let my enemy harm me, I love you. I have proved my love for God. Without his grace, I would not have made it through. But during my worst times, when I felt abandoned, alone, when God was silent, I cried out, I love you, Jesus. And this is precious. It's precious to God, but until I actually went through the test, through that hardship, until I passed that test, I had not proven that. What an incredible speech. Andrew Brunson passed the test. He proved that he loved Jesus Christ. I like this. Andrew Brunson said there's a depth of intimacy with God that only comes through suffering and testing of your faith. Our guest is Andrew Brunson, author of God's Hostage, a true story of persecution, imprisonment, and perseverance. Andrew Brunson has a Ph.D. in New Testament from the University of Aberdeen, Scotland. Andrew Brunson and his wife Noreen pastored in Turkey for 23 years until being falsely accused of terrorism in 2016. He was in a filthy Turkish prison for two years until worldwide prayer and pressure from the Trump administration and all of Congress got him released. Why in the world did you go to Turkey and why were you arrested? Turkey is the largest unevangelized country in the world. Most Turks have never met a Christian in their lives. Most Turkish cities don't have any church pastors or missionaries, and many of them don't have any believers at all. Much of the New Testament was written to people living in Turkey or by people living in Turkey. So it's a land of the Bible in a way, but not many believers now. You asked why I was arrested. My wife and I were called into the local police station. We thought we were going to pick up our long-term residence permits that we'd applied for, but we were told there was an order to deport us and they were going to arrest us until that time. So that really shocked us, and then they held on to me for another two years. Why did they arrest me? They wanted to use me as an example to intimidate other missionaries and have them leave the country to self-deport. They also wanted to intimidate Turkish pastors and Turkish Christians. Your book is fascinating. Your story has been incredible. You're a man of God. You knew of a few Christians that had been martyred for their work, and you went through such severe testing. You had a man that aimed a pistol at you. This was before you ever went into prison. What about that? 
a man pulled out a gun and shot at me and then pulled out a shotgun. <laughs> but that's something that... Wait a minute, uh, Andrew, could, could, l- could I elaborate a little bit on that? Suddenly, a man in a camouflage jacket pointed a pistol and began firing at point-blank range 12 feet away. His eyes were filled with bright rage. All you could do was focus on his pistol that was trembling in his grip. Six shots rang out in succession. Then he dropped the pistol and pulled out a shotgun. You knew he couldn't miss with a shotgun. All you could do is rush over and wrap your arms around him, give him a bear hug, and you held him for dear life, desperate to hold him. The gunman yelled, you started a Christian church and we won't permit it, we'll kill you. Finally, the police arrived. How long did you have to hold him in that bear hug? I don't know, but he was stronger and larger than I, and so I was just holding on, hoping that I could keep him in that hold until others came to help. There were other threats, bomb threats, shooting, things like that. When we worked on the Syrian border, there were a lot of ISIS people. There was risk. When we would go out to the Syrian border, I could hear bombs going off, the small arms fire as the Kurds were fighting ISIS. There was risk out there. I think of my wife, for example. I think she's very courageous, but she also has fear. Noreen was afraid when she was there, but she would go and do it anyway because being obedient in spite of fear, that is real courage. That is real courage. And all of a sudden, you're arrested. There must have been a lot of fear with that. So when we were arrested, they kept me. I was there for two years in prison. If I had known it would be two years, it would have been a lot easier because I would have counted the days down. It still would have been very difficult. But I didn't know. The Turkish government wanted three life sentences plus 35 years on top of that in solitary confinement with no possibility of parole. So I lived those two years with the uncertainty of whether I'd ever get out. You described your first cell, four bunk beds, a filthy floor, two dirty sinks, and a small bathroom with a hole in the floor that you squatted over, and a little faucet attachment to clean yourself off with. Flies were coming in from the window with no glass. You had the clothes on your back, and that was it. And who knows, maybe ISIS terrorists were held there as your cellmate. When I was put into solitary for 50 days, that really is where I began to break with the fear, the waves of fear. They produce stress hormones, kind of overwhelms the body's natural tranquilizer system. In time, it breaks the body down, and I began to have a lot of panic attacks, which kept me from sleep. So I was sleep-deprived and isolated, and that's how you break people. That's why I really began to go into crisis with God, and then I was moved from solitary to a high-security prison, which was very, very intense. It was a cell built for eight people. There were over 20 of us crowded into that cell, and it was 24-7. You don't leave the cell. You're kept there 24-7. There are no public areas. You're just in that cell with those people. The last prison I was in was maximum security for just over a year, and it was freezing cold, and I could not get warm. I just froze all winter. There were hardships, but what was the most difficult thing for me was the isolation in my faith. I was the only Christian, so there was nobody to encourage me, to pray with me, to correct me when I started having wrong thinking, wrong thoughts. And even when I was in a cell crowded in with so many people, I felt intensely alone, especially in my faith. All the people I was kept with were committed Muslims, 24-7 Muslim worship going on every hour of the day and night in a very crowded cell. So it was inescapable for me. Together with my crisis of faith ended up taking me to breaking point, and I, I did break, broke repeatedly and thoroughly. 
depression is a taste of hell itself. And so you were really experiencing the dark night of the soul, really going through what Jesus, a taste of what Jesus went through when you think of Gethsemane to the cross and all the cliches like, well, just be like Paul and Silas and start singing. Sometimes those don't work. Yeah, from biographies of people who experience hardship, who are my spiritual heroes, there isn't really any inner turmoil or crisis. And maybe they didn't have a crisis going on. Maybe there was no inner struggle. But my expectation when I went into prison was, I'm suffering for the Lord. I know this is persecution. I don't like it, but I understand that the conditions that I'm in are because of persecution. But what really broke me and took me into crisis with God was His absence. That's what I first began to question is, where is my kind, gentle father? I'm your friend. I'm your son. How could you do this to me? I understood that I could undergo persecution, but I didn't see his hand intervening for me in any way. My situation just kept getting worse and worse and worse. I'm going into crisis about, am I expendable to him? Is he willing to just put me through terrible hardship to make me a tougher soldier, you could say? If I have God's presence, that's really what I need. And if I have that, then I can do anything. I can go through anything. Amen. And then that sense of presence was entirely removed from me. I experienced what I would call the silence of God. It's not just a sense of depression, but a deep despair and hopelessness that comes from feeling abandoned. That sense of abandonment is very, very strong, and we even see it in Jesus when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had a strong sense of it that took him into an agony of the soul. And so all of this turmoil in my relationship with God led me to begin to question his existence. And then when I started a discipline daily, multiple times of declaring the truth, God, you exist and you're involved in my life. Yeah, I think of some of the people like Joseph, who was 13 years in prison, or Richard Wormbrandt, who was 14 years tortured in a Romanian prison. These are people we kind of look up to as great men of faith, but you went from weeping because you had to leave Turkey to now weeping because you couldn't leave Turkey. (laughs) The cell was torture. The bunk was too low to sit on. There was no chair. They took away your glasses. You had to either lay on the bed or stand or walk. There was nothing to do, no reading, no writing, nobody to talk to. Added to that was fear. It was overwhelming. Piece by piece, I could feel myself falling apart. How could you stop from going crazy? You could let panic and total meltdown take you down. You were in the hands of a dreadful, malevolent spiritual power held captive by a dark force. Maybe Satan. Maybe you'd never be let out. So when you saw that Bible, you looked at the Bible like a starving man seeing a banquet. You couldn't wait to get your hands on your Bible. That was a treasure. So many people take their Bible for granted here in this country. Yeah, I was allowed to have a Bible. Then when I was put into high security prison, they took it away for a few months. (laughs) When I didn't have the Bible, it's what I most longed for as far as spiritual comfort. There are many people who died so that I could have access to the scriptures. It was a physical, tangible representation of the body of Christ and my connection to it. That was a great comfort to me. Your story, it's incredibly important to people that are suffering for persecution, but it's also a story, Andrew, for people that have suffered, felt abandoned by God. I love you so much because you are honest and your story helps other people that are suffering as well, even if they're not in prison or persecuted. It's because I love God so much that it was so painful when I felt distancing of his love, the separation from him. If I didn't love him very much, then it wouldn't bother me so much, right? We're tested in different ways, but we're tested in the same area of the heart. 
everybody who's a believer, I think, goes into what I would call the valley of testing. I'm questioning him, and he's got questions for me. Andrew, are you going to be faithful to me even when you do not see my faithfulness? I so wanted presence, but became more focused in time on what God wanted from me was a simple devotion, just a simple faithfulness, loyalty, devotion, a simple love for him, even in his seeming absence and silence. My theme verse in prison became Isaiah 50, verse 10. For the one who walks in darkness and has no light, let him trust in the name of his God and lean on him, lean into him. God was teaching me to stand in the dark. He said, when you're in darkness, lean on me. And I had to learn to lean into him. So important to God, but many people link trust with an outcome. People would send me messages, Andrew, just trust God. Trust God that he's going to get you out of prison. There isn't any verse in the Bible that says that that's going to happen. We are trusting for an outcome, and our trust is linked to that. The way that I applied trust in my life was leaning into the leadership of Jesus. What I came to the point of saying is, Jesus, I trust that you're a good leader. I believe you're a good leader. I don't know where you're going to take me, what difficulties I will have to go through, but I do believe that you will guard my heart and take me through to your kingdom. So I'm going to lean into you even if I don't understand. To me, that's trust. This is what I would say for your listeners who are in difficult times. Say, I will lean into you even if I don't understand. I believe you're a good leader. I will lean into you and I will stand in the dark. Yeah, that's good. I think it's fascinating, this saccharine prison. The cell was filthy, you wrote. The bag of bread was covered with a thick green mold. The squat toilet was covered in human filth. The tap water would probably make you sick to drink. You had to make an effort to pull yourself back to sanity. Even more terrifying, you were afraid you could lose your faith in God. You considered hanging yourself on the clothesline. Your cellmates were all Muslims and called you a filthy animal. If they decided to kill you, you couldn't defend yourself against 20 men. Your face was inches away from another prisoner who didn't even like you, and your face was inches away from his, and you had to sleep that close together. I struggled with suicide during the time of breaking, the first year. The reasons for that were my crisis of faith with God, feeling abandoned by Him, the continuing wave of panic attacks, the lack of sleep. My body broke down. I lost close to 50 pounds in the first months. Just in every way I was breaking down. The isolation, I feared at times that I would lose my mind. I felt that I crossed over and tasted of insanity and I'd pull myself back, but I was afraid that sometime I wouldn't be able to pull back. At no point did I want to abandon my relationship with God. But I was afraid that with all of these pressures and my isolation and feel so abandoned and the silence of God, that I would drift away from him. My Muslim cellmates would say, Andrew, you will become a Muslim. This just echoed in my mind. And so I was afraid that would happen, not that I would deliberately deny the Lord, but that I would drift away under all the pressures I was facing. And I thought, well, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better to go to heaven missing one eye than to go to hell with two eyes. And so I thought, wouldn't it be better if I just went ahead and killed myself? It would be a defeat, but I will go to be with the Lord. And wouldn't that be better than drifting away and being lost? 
So it was the wrong way of thinking because I was very confused at the time. It reminds me of Job. And if anybody's ever gone through horrible trials, it's like Job. And Job can be one of the most helpful books when you're going through such grief. And you did say, I am Job. I am Job. I am Job. And then told your wife, Noreen, I am Job. Noreen has imagined that Satan says to God, just take away Andrew's sense of presence and you'll see what he does. Because this is so important to me. God says, okay, I'll do that. And you will see what he does. Part of the testing that I had was to have the sense of God's presence removed from me, to stand in the dark, to remain faithful to him, to prove my loyalty to him when I didn't sense his love or his grace or his presence. There was a testing of my faithfulness and my love that I had to pass, and I did pass it. The turning point for me came with a decision of the will, not with the emotions, because the emotions were in turmoil. But with a decision of the will, I am going to turn my eyes toward God and not away. Multiple times in a day, I will turn my eyes toward you and not away. When my heart is offended, I turn toward you, not away. When I'm at my weakest point, when I'm just weeping and in desperation, I still choose to put my eyes on you. It made all the difference. It's like turning toward him. This is what set me up so that he could rebuild me in prison. And so for your listeners, no matter how deep the pit you're in, no matter how depressed, discouraged, the darkness that you're in, you still have a choice, but you do have a choice that you can make with your will. You can choose to turn toward God, and even turning your eyes slightly toward Him will position you to receive from Him, and it's all the difference in the world. Yeah, that's good. Most days you wrote the temperature in the cell was above 100 degrees, but one day it was 116 degrees. That cell was airless. It was still. There were more than 20 men crammed together, sweating profusely. The heat became oppressive. You were soaking in sweat. 116 degrees seems awful hot, but hell is much hotter, possibly 10 to 12,000 degrees. You think about the Muslims. There are almost 2 billion Muslims in the world who are going not to heaven, but to hell. Muhammad couldn't save himself. Allah is Satan and can't save anyone. There's only one Savior. So when I think about that heat in that cell, I'm reminded about all these Muslims that you are with, all of them going to hell forever. What I did is I said, I embrace this misery from the heat, a sacrifice. I bring it before you, God, as a sacrifice of my love for you. I say, I give this to you, Jesus. I am suffering for you, and I choose willingly to suffer for you. I choose willingly to be hot for your sake. That's a turning point, too. Instead of complaining or disappointed in God or disappointed in whatever, but then we choose to persevere, and through something like this, you learn what perseverance is, and part of the word is severe, so it's not easy. And I used to wonder about, Paul, how does he glory in tribulation? How, God, teach me how to do that, to take pleasure in infirmities and distresses? But that's only something God can do. It's Christ in us. Christ brings us through all this. We may not feel anything. We may not feel joy. The feelings, that's not what you base it on. You base it on, Jesus, you are my joy. I may not feel joy, but I don't need to feel it 
because I have you. He's teaching us perseverance, which is not that easy to learn. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) Perseverance is, by definition, enduring hardship, continue being faithful to difficult circumstances. Years ago, someone was praying for me, and during the prayer said, Andrew, you will be known for perseverance. And I said, oh, no, (laughs) not perseverance. I'd rather be known for miracles or having a lot of people turning to Jesus through my ministry or something, but not perseverance, because that's something you learn in hardship. But then when I was in need of perseverance, when I was breaking and very weak, I remembered that word. I asked God for it, and He did build it in me, because every time that I fell down, was weak, I had a choice whether I tried to get up or not. For example, that pursuit of God, when I say, I choose to turn toward you and not away. That was perseverance, choosing to fight, even when my feelings are in turmoil, to say, no, I use my will and I force myself, and day after day, I choose to keep my eyes on you. And every time that I got up, I said to God, whatever you do or don't do, I I have no conditions anymore for following you. Whether you give me your presence or not, whether you give me your voice or not, whether you deliver me or not, I will follow you. I place no conditions on this. That's a decision of the will to put it in practice day after day after day. Yeah, that's good. That's one way you got rid of your doubts and said, that's not going to stop me from having a relationship with God. I like that. Just put those questions away and someday they'll be answered, maybe in heaven. We've been talking with Pastor Andrew Brunson, author of God's Hostage, a true story of persecution, imprisonment, and perseverance. We'll continue with Pastor Andrew Brunson next time. Peter put it best when he wrote, quote, Though you have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proven genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. If you would like a CD copy of today's program, please ask for number 1808, Suffering in a Muslim Prison, Part 1. That's number 1808, Suffering in a Muslim Prison, Part 1. The CD also includes next week's program, Part 2. You can order a CD copy of this program from our website. Our website is issuesineducation.org. That's issuesineducation.org. Please give us a call at 928-776-0000. That's 928-776-0000. From Romans 8:18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For Issues in Education, this has been Bob and Jerry Boyd.